As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. So we pray that you would enlighten us now by the power of your spirit, that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and we'll read verses 31 through 46 as we think about Christ's return in glory this evening. So, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, We've been considering our way through the Belgic Confession, which is a statement of our Christian faith, a summary of what we see God's word teaching us. And every summary is organized in a certain way. Uh, The Belgic Confession is organized in a systematic way. It treats the topics of theology in order. Um, And whenever someone tries to teach the topics of theology in order, they usually end here with what is typically called eschatology. Uh, Now, my dad said you should never use the word eschatology in a sermon. Um, If you're a seminarian and you use the word eschatology, you would lose points with him. He says, no good using jargon that people might not know what you're talking about. Um, And so what is eschatology? It's just a fancy way of saying the doctrine of the last things. The doctrine of the last things, the things that come at the end. Uh, 
And every part of theology, it's important to understand how things come out in the end, uh, where things come out. And the Belgic Confession turns to eschatology as the last topic of theology here. The last thing we learn is about what will happen at the end. Um, And that's an important thing for God's people in every generation to know what will happen in the end. Um, But maybe you noticed as we read through Belgian Confession in Article 37, this sense of vindication that the church is hoping for at the end. And it's good for us to remember that when the Belgian Confession was written, it was written by a church in the midst of serious suffering. A church that was being persecuted by the governing authorities for its religion. Um, The Belgian Confession is one of the few Reformed confessions that was written by someone who lost his life for the faith. Um, And the the official charges that were laid against him was preaching the gospel of the Reformed faith and administering communion to a Reformed congregation. For those crimes, he was hanged. And so he was living and ministering and writing in a time where the church was under persecution, the church and the truth was under attack. And you hear in this last this doctrine of the last things, not just a theology of what happens at the end, but a great hope for the people of God. A hope for vindication that the cause we have been espousing is not a cause against the Lord or against the world. It's actually the Lord's cause in the world. And one day it will be seen as that. And those who slandered us as heretics, those who've accused us of leading people astray, will be seen as being those who actually were trying to lead the world into the truth. And that glorious day will come when when the people who've served the Lord Jesus Christ will be seen in the world as those who are actually serving the King. And I think there is something in that for all of us still today. Because more and more there is hostility building in the world against the church of Jesus Christ. These things are not popular that we espouse. Um, They are becoming less and less civilized and and respected in the mainstream. We're becoming more and more ostracized and pushed off to the side. Um, Even just reading through these things we believe about the last times and what Jesus says... In Matthew 25, that's hard stuff. It's difficult stuff. It's difficult truth. And who wants to come, especially on a Sunday night after a long week, and think about hell and destruction and fire? Um, Can't we have something more cheery and upbeat? And that's why it's important to recognize that, that what happens at the end is the best kind of good news for those who are in right standing with the Lord. It's the best kind of hope for us and the reason we do what we do in the world. To try to help the world lest they meet the day of the Lord when it comes unprepared. Unready to meet the Lord when He comes. These are vitally important things for God's people to believe and to confess and to think about. Right? At least once a week and hopefully more, we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. And it's good for us to remember what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come. Um, it's summarized helpfully for us in Heidelberg Catechism, question 123. What do we mean when we say that? We mean rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. 
Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do, this, do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. That's what we're really hoping for in the world, to see that day when the Lord will be all in all. And we know that that kingdom cannot come fully until the king of that kingdom comes. Um, That will be the day the kingdom comes fully when the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns in glory. And so we begin with the God who exists and who made the world in our confession of faith. And we end with what is going to happen when the king returns in glory. And that's what we want to begin to think about this evening. We're not going to try to tackle the whole article this evening, but we do want to think about the return of our Lord and to think about what's going to happen before He returns and what's going to happen when He returns. And that's sort of what I want to think about with you this evening, the return of our Lord in glory, what will happen before He comes, and what will happen when He returns um, so we can be comforted. That's the purpose of this article, to comfort the people of God. Um, And so we want to think about those things together. What do we confess about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Finally, we believe according to God's word that when the time appointed by the Lord is come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty. Uh, The Lord will come. And one of the glorious things the scriptures teach us about his coming is that when he comes, that's the end. Uh, There are many people that are looking for multiple future comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Comings that will be something less than the full consummation of his kingdom. And we want to say with, with the scriptures that there is only one second and final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming, and when he comes, his kingdom will be all in all. Uh, We're not anticipating multiple comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people who think he's going to come in multiple sort of appearances. A typical example of this would be, you know, various millennial points of view that think there is sort of a temporary coming of Christ where he comes and reigns for a thousand years, and then there's the final coming and consummation of his kingdom. Uh, When we went through our study in Revelation, we noticed that the Bible doesn't support that kind of thinking, that there's going to be sort of multiple returns of the Lord, and something will only happen in the last permanent return. Uh, No, the Bible talks in terms of one great appearing day of the Lord, Uh, one day that's coming that will make all things right in the world, that one day that God's people are hoping for. Um, Hebrews 9 talks this way, 9, 27, and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is coming, and when he comes, everything happens then at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the testimony of Scripture there. That's the testimony of the scripture we read this evening, right? Matthew 25, 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the world. 
and those will go away to eternal punishment who do not know him, and those who know him will go to eternal righteousness and life. Uh, That's what happens at his glorious coming. The Lord's return is a second and final return, and everything that's promised to happen at the end happens then. The number of the elect will be complete. Jesus will return from heaven bodily, visibly, not secretly, just as he ascended into heaven to declare himself judge and to judge the living and the dead, to purify this world and to bring the new heavens and the new earth and to vindicate those who are his and to condemn those who are not his. All of that happens at his return. We are looking for that one final second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to think about those things that, that will happen, that will anticipate that, that we will anticipate happening on that day. What's going to happen before the Lord returns? Um, you might think here we're going to get into all the signs of the times that, that we talk about. But really, what does the Belgic Confession point us to as the things that will happen that will precede the coming of the Lord? That we know will happen before the Lord comes in glory. Well, finally, we believe, according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord is come, which is unknown to all creatures, we need to know, first of all, that there is a time appointed, and that appointed time has to come. Now, we don't know what that time is, and people have you know, bang their heads against a wall trying to figure out what it is, even though God's word tells us clearly it's not known, right? It's, it's, a foolish, it's a fool's errand to try to figure out what this time is. The Bible tells us that very clearly. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so Jesus says in Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And Paul affirms this teaching of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now when I say that, don't think about that bad video. Um, What does that mean, he comes like a thief in the night? When you're not looking for him unexpectedly at an hour you don't know. It's just another way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25. The comfort that God's people are to take is that there is a time appointed by the Father. Um, This world is on the clock of the Father. The Father has organized history such that it is moving toward the date that he has set for the coming of his son. Just as he had set that time in history when Jesus would come into the world the first time to save sinners. There was an appointed time. And when the fullness of time came, Paul says, Christ came into the world. What that tells us is the father had appointed a time in history and said, this is the time for my son to come. And there, too, it was a time where nobody knew that that was going to be the day. That that was going to be the hour when God himself became incarnate in the world. No one knew the time that God had appointed. And God had even said it was going to come in a sort of sudden and unexpected way. Malachi had prophesied that about the first coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He will suddenly appear. There will be a day when the Lord will be in your midst at his temple. And in God's time, that came about. The Lord Jesus came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to save those who were under the law so that we might redeem adoption as sons. See, it's important to recognize that the Father has set a time by His authority. That appointed time is set, just as the appointed time of Christ's first coming was set by the Father. And why should that fact fill us with encouragement when we don't know what time it is? Right? If You might say, well, Pastor, I could take some encouragement from that if I knew, like two and a half years from now. Right? I want you to know that's not what I'm saying to you. This is an example. Don't write this down in your notes and get it wrong. Um, but, you know, we might say, if you could tell me that, then I could, I could circle it on my calendar, and I could try to say I can hold on to that day. Um, but knowing that there is a day, but not knowing what day it is. Knowing that it's short, the time is short, the night is far gone, the day's at hand, the, the last hour is here. But that's been true for decades and, and centuries since the apostles wrote that down. How do we understand those things? Is it a comfort to me that there's a time, but I don't know it? I think the encouragement we can take from Scripture is there was an appointed time for Christ to come once to deal with sins, and He came. That appointed time arrived, and everything that God's people needed to be done for them was done. They needed to be redeemed. They needed to be adopted, and He came and did that. And the encouragement God gives us is to say, I appointed a time for my son to come once, and he came at that time, at just the right time. That's the miracle of what Paul says in Romans. He came at just the right time and died for sinners. And so what God's people can hope in is even though we don't know the time that the Father has fixed by his own authority, we already know there was a day for salvation fixed, and Christ came. They said, we, the God said He would come and He came and He saved sinners. And there's a time God said He's coming again in glory to accomplish our total redemption. And we can know that if the time appointed by God has already proven true for salvation, it will certainly prove true for redemption, for glorification. There is a time appointed and we are marching toward that time. It's the time that God has appointed when the number of the elect will be complete. That's the other thing that has to happen before the Lord Jesus returns again in glory. All those of the elect have to be gathered. Because we know that Jesus died for all those who the Father gave to him. Right? All those that they had planned to save from before the foundation of the earth. It's the interesting prophecy that was made by the high priest in Jesus' day in John eleven fifty to 52. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not idle in these days, 
between his first coming and his second coming? What is he continuing to do? He's continuing to do exactly what that high priest against his will and without knowing prophesied to be true. He died for the nation and is gathering into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. All those for whom Christ died. He's gathering them. He's gathering them. Uh, that's the picture we're given in Revelation 6.11. Uh, when the saints under the altar cry out, How long, O Lord? What are we told? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. How long? Well, till we're all gathered. Till the number of the elect is complete. Christ won't come until all those for whom he died believe in him and are gathered in to the kingdom of his Father. Um, election is a controversial term, I know, but by that we just mean what the Bible means by it, that God has made a plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world. That there was a divine plan. That the Father had a people he meant to save. And he sent his Son into the world to save that people. And the Son came into the world saying, I am here to save the people who have been committed to me by my Father. And all those he gives to me, I will lose none of them. I will raise them up on the last day. That plan of redemption he came into the world to accomplish by his death on the cross. To die for sinners. And then the Spirit goes out into the world in time and history and calls to those people for whom Jesus died so that they hear and live and come to the Lord. They hear the voice of Jesus calling to them as their shepherd. Even those people in the Old Testament who were hearing his voice, not quite yet knowing whose voice they were hearing, understanding it only in a sort of shadowy way, but they could still hear that it was his voice by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and they followed him. And we're blessed to live in these days after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so we know clearly who's calling. But it's by the Spirit that we hear His voice and we follow. That's what Christ is accomplishing in the world. That's what that's fuels the mission of the church in the world because we know there are people out there for whom Jesus died who don't yet know Him. Who've not yet heard the good news of what He's done for them. And know that when they hear it, they will hear it as the voice of their Savior calling them to come to Him and live. Um, that, that should be what fuels us in this world to know that there are brothers and sisters who've not yet been gathered in out there. And to des desire to see it happening. And that's true whether it's in the far reaches of the world, and it's true whether it's our neighbor next door. There might be someone for whom the Lord died that still needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the promise of God's word is that one day, all those for whom Christ died will have come in. Everyone who Jesus died for will hear the call of the gospel, respond in faith, and the whole church will be one. It's like that day that's appointed. We don't know what day that will be. We don't have a counter. But imagine we did as a church. Imagine there was a, you know, a ticking counter of how many people had to be saved. Um, and we would come in every Sunday and you would look at the counter and see how many people it's going to take before the number is complete. Imagine you came in one Sunday and it said 10 more people in the world. 
We need to reach the last 10 people. Do you think that would inspire us to go out and share the gospel with people? Do you think that might be more on our mind to, to say to ourselves, we might have the last one around, around here somewhere. Maybe they're in deepest, darkest Africa. That could be. But maybe they're here around the corner. Wouldn't that inspire us to continue to talk to people when we come eagerly to church to see is the clicker down? And, and, the, and the more it clicked down, the more we'd be rushing out to try to find that last person. That notion that the elect are being gathered, that Christ is finding those who belong to him, it should fuel the mission of the church, it should fuel our evangelism to want to see our brothers and sisters who are out there who don't know Jesus come in. And to be filled with that assurance that there is a day coming when God will have used his church and his people to reach that last person who needs to hear. Who will hear, unlike the Old Testament, will grab your shirt and say, take me to Zion with you. I need to find the Lord. There is a day coming when the whole church will be completed. And again, we don't know what day that will be. But that should fill us with encouragement that one day the church will be whole. There aren't any empty seats at the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb. There are, there are cards written for everybody who's supposed to be at the table, and there's nobody missing there. Everybody who's supposed to be there is there. That should fill us with hope that Christ is doing his work. He's on a mission in this world. The Spirit is on a mission in this world. To go and make all those for whom Christ died live by grace through faith in him. And so when we're tempted to look around and say, you know, what is God doing in this world? And we look at the world and its situation and say, Lord, what are you doing? This is the answer. I'm building my church. I'm gathering my children. And I'm not going to stop until they're gathered into the one nation of the people. So the church is whole. That's what we're waiting for. For that plan of redemption that began before the foundation of the world to be fulfilled by the powerful working of the Spirit. And then Christ will come. When that appointed day comes, when the number of the elect is complete, then we know that the Lord Jesus will come again in glory. And that's what we confess. Our Lord Jesus will come again from heaven bodily and visibly as he ascended. Now, these are not speculations about the future, hopes, projections from the church into what we hope might happen one day, maybe. This is exactly what Jesus promised. Right? We can read in Acts 1.11, the angel said to the apostles, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Just as he ascended bodily and visibly, so he will descend bodily and visibly. But on that day, it won't just be 11 men on a hilltop who see it. Every eye will see it. It will be bodily and visibly for all. Now, that's the, the promise of Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth 
will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He is coming bodily and visibly as he ascended, but when he descends, it will be with great glory and majesty. Great glory and majesty. That's important because it tells God's people it can't be missed. If every eye will see him and he's going to come with great glory and majesty, this is not an event that you can miss. That's the importance of what Jesus says in Matthew 24 about the signs of the times, particularly to those who are saying, no, no, he's already came, he already came, you miss it. Or he came, but he came in this little room over here. You, you should have seen it. It was really awesome, but you missed it. You know, the, this is the kind of thing that Jesus is going to push all the way off to the side and say, don't listen to people when they say dumb stuff like that. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 23 to 31? Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will, will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Is that an event you can miss? No, what, what Jesus is saying is you know there are things that, that you see and you know what they mean. You know that when lightning flashes in the sky from west to east, you know that it's lightning and everybody sees it. We don't have much lightning out here. Um, we had you know some thunder and lightning the last few days. And I saw the weather report, and the woman said, you know, people were saying, this is kind of crazy. And I said, yeah, it's crazy to Southern Californians who never see this. Uh, everyone else who's grown up in other places, they've seen a lot of this. It's crazy for us. But when lightning cracks across the sky, you don't go, was that lightning? Everyone knows what that means. That's why Jesus says that strange phrase, you know, when the, when the, when the vultures are circling, there there's the corpse. What? What does that mean? Um, well, he's using something to say, when you see vultures circling, you know what that means. When you see lightning, you know what that means. And so don't let someone tell you that the Son of Man is coming, you didn't see it. There will be signs such that no one will be able to miss that great and glorious day. Every eye will see it. It will be great and glorious and majestic when the Son of God returns. And when he returns, he will declare himself the judge of the living and the dead. Now that's what's happening in our text in Matthew 25. He's judging the living and the dead. He's setting himself up on his throne. Um, and that's how we're to think of the Lord Jesus Christ and his majesty. That's a particular role of the king to judge. We think of a judge in robes when we think of judges. They would have thought of a king. A king sitting on his throne to make judgments on his kingdom. And that's how Christ is to be thought of. 
When Paul wants to charge Timothy in lofty terms, what does he say in 2 Timothy 4.1? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Right? There's nothing higher than the king on his throne. Um, or 1 Peter 4.5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Um, he's going to judge the living and the dead, and we read he is going to burn this old world in flame and fire in order to cleanse it. That, too, is not a kind of speculation. It's the direct testimony of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, There is a day coming. It's going to be like a flood of fire, Peter says. He kind of compares it to the days of Noah when water came and cleansed the earth of wickedness. He said there's another cleansing coming, but this cleansing is not going to be of water, but of fire. And it's not just going to cleanse the earth, it's going to cleanse the heavens and the earth. And we know that the only way for Noah to escape the judgment with his family was through the, through the ark that God provided him, through the way of escape that God provided. And just in that way, you have to have the only way of escape through that fire of judgment that's coming, that's going to burn the heavens and the earth. And what is the way to escape that? Um, it's securely trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith to deliver you from the judgment to come. Um, that's the, the promise of what Christ is going to do, to leave no wickedness or unrighteousness undealt with in this world, to hunt it out until he finds none of it and to cleanse the world of it and to make a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells, uh, a, more, a more full and perfect cleansing than came with the waters of judgment in Noah's day. That's what's going to happen, and there's going to be a great judgment at that time. And we're going to come back to this theme of judgment, but you know, the things that we read about the judgment can be very unsettling, um, especially when we, we talk about um, the, the accounting that will have to be given. Uh, again, we don't have time to get into all of this tonight, but I don't want to leave it uncommented on. Um, we read in the books that as the consciences will be opened and the dead will be judged according to the things they did in the world, whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will give an account of all the idle words they have spoken, which the world regards as only playing games. And then the secrets and hypocrisies of men will be publicly uncovered in the sight of all. Is that that horrible day people warned us about when a movie of your life will be broadcast for the whole world to watch and all your faults and failings will be placarded before people and it'll be super embarrassing and awful but after that you'll go to heaven so it'll end up okay Um, is that what we're talking about is the judgment to be something to be feared by God's people and I love how the Belgic confession goes on it says therefore with good reason the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people but it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect since their total redemption will then be accomplished. 
The thought of the judgment is meant to be a comfort to God's people. It's not meant to be a source of fear. It's, it's meant to be th- thought about in terms of the vindication of God's judgment that the wicked will be shown to be the kind of wicked people they really are. But that's not to be the case with the righteous. And Matthew 25 is a helpful picture of that. Because look at the order in which things happen in that scene of judgment that Jesus gives to his people. First, Christ comes in his glory and sets up his throne. And then what does he do? He sorts them out into sheep and goats. And what is the word that the king has for his sheep? What is the word that the king has for his people? Um, Does he turn to them and say, all right, now you wretched sinners, let's rehearse all the evil deeds you did in all your life. Let's watch the movie of your life with all of its sins and failures. Now, what does the king say to the sheep on his right hand? Then the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. He doesn't rehearse their failings, but their righteousness. Right To the extent where they say, I don't remember doing any of that. Um, but the Lord was seeing and the Lord was taking note, not of their wickedness, but of their service to him. That's what he remembers. That's what he recounts. And that's why the, 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 the judgment is not to be seen as a fearful event for the people of God. Because all that was awful in the judgment for us was faced for us on our behalf by Christ on his cross. There, the record that stood against us with its legal demands were canceled by the Son of God who died for our sins, who had everything we did judged against him so that he might spare us from the judgment to come. That's why whenever God's people think about the final judgment, we should think of it not in terms of some kind of scary event, for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, but the event that marks our total redemption. Right? I I love that phrase in the confession. It's a great comfort to the righteous and elect since their total redemption will then be accomplished. What the Lord knows, He will proclaim before the earth. He will make public the judgment that has already been entered of righteous for all of his people in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the vindication of the righteous, the public vindication of the righteous. All that final judgment means for us in Jesus now is that will be the event marking our total redemption, where the invitation to the kingdom comes to us, enter into the kingdom of my Father, and we receive what? We enter in to righteousness and life. It's a terrible picture for the wicked. They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's an entering into all we hope for in the Lord Jesus Christ, a realization of all that he's promised to us. It should be a day we long for. Um, I'll end with this. John Newton, towards the end of his life, knew that his life was coming to the end. He knew that he was you know, about to die and to go to his father. And people would talk to him about how he was feeling about that. And he said, you know, I'm like someone who has his bags packed 
and he's looking out the window waiting for the stagecoach to come. I'm ready to go because I know what awaits me there. And so I'm constantly peeking out the window to think of its time yet. And you can only face the reality of death and the judgment to come if you know there's nothing to fear there because you know the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, that your sins were put to death there with him. And he's coming again in glory not to deal with your sin because he's already done that by his cross. He's not coming to deal with your sin. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, who have their bags packed and who are peeking out the window to see if their ride is here yet. That's the hope, that's the comfort in which God's people can live if we rightly understand these things. And so I hope our study of the last things will not be one uh, that fills us with terror and uncertainty, but fills us with good hope for the future in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to rightly understand the final judgment. We desire to see your name vindicated in the world, that you have been a just and righteous God, that your ways are perfect, that everything you do is wise and just. We desire for that to be seen in the world, that your name might be glorified. Uh, We desire to be vindicated before the world for following you that there are so many who think that what we engage in is folly, that it's a waste of time to be giving our our time and effort to hear sermons preached on Sunday, even twice on Sunday, that serving you is a fool's errand. But we look forward to that day when we will be vindicated, when it will be shown to be a matter of life and death to follow your son, and that he will be revealed as the king of all the earth, and those who follow him will be seen as those who have not followed him in vain. And we will hear the king's invitation into his kingdom and not only hear it, but enter into it, a joy beyond our ability to describe or fully comprehend. And so help us all to be ready by putting our faith and trust in the saving work and in the cross of this world and enter the next. May you speed that day. May you gather your children scattered abroad until we are one people under one shepherd enjoying glory together. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up our Psalters together and stand and turn to number 388. Rejoice, 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 believers. And we'll sing all the verses of 388.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ until that day of total redemption. Hear now the blessing of your God and lift your hearts to hear it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be and abide with you all. Amen. People of God, go in peace.